One of the things that's the most distract, no, I'm going to start with this. Probably the most important thing Job says in his entire oratory on pain, which is what it is, a book on pain. He says, naked I emerged. Naked I shall go. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. A little later, that's 121. A little later in 1315, he says this, 1315 and 16. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. He also shall be my salvation. The most disturbing thing to me this week was realizing I have been the victim of demoralizing fear. I don't know whose tactic it is, but it's a tactic, and you can read books about how the communists used to do it. There's a very famous Russian writer named Alexander Solzhenin. I think I'm mispronouncing it. His words read like a prophecy of our days in America. It's quite disturbing. And he tells us that the thing we shall see when the atheism that is communism, and don't think it's just a political theory, it's atheism acting. When communism comes for you, it does so quietly by making you nervous to talk about what used to be kind of normal, but everyone else is nervous too. That's called demoralizing fear, looking over your shoulder before you say something, just in case what? Land of the brave? Now, what's most important in that is not who you voted for. Both sides say the other side stole it or is stealing it. Oh, wow, mom and dad are fighting. And big time. Both sides are a mythology. Both parties are a story men are telling about the future of life on earth based upon their works with which they shall justify a final glorious achieving day. Not when Jesus comes back, but when we make America build back and get there. and We're there for sure, and we forget what Job said. It all is going to collapse again when evil men get a hold of it and start using it to imbalance power for themselves. And all of history is just a, 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 well, a TV show, frankly, of this happening. Christians don't have to be bothered by this. What we should really see, though, again, as I said a moment ago, the, the problem's not Stalin or Lenin or Marx. And if you don't know those names, you should. You don't know history then. But they're not the problem. The problem is the atheism which is not about the arguments that professors have ultimately. It's about an actual belief that nothing can judge you. And men who come to that conclusion and are powerful and clever, well, they always do what they always do. They take power from you. And you can try to take power back. Good men often do. But even the best of men can find themselves on a pile of ash with everything taken away from them. And again, that's the story of Job. But before we get into him, 
I want you to realize that every time you would look over your shoulder before you would talk about anything, Satan is the one you're thinking about. If you're afraid to say it out loud ever, you shouldn't, or you're listening to a lie. Those are your two options. Uh, you know, raising kids is fun. They do it a completely different way. I don't mean to offend you, but well, as soon as you said I don't mean to, you know you should have said whatever came next. Just pipe it, you know. But that's what this is. And what I've been pressing on you for weeks now, the anxiety, the stress, the pain, and the conscience, that's because this myth, this story is bigger than the story you hear here at St. Paul in your head. It's not actually bigger. Christ the King is much bigger. But the noise in your life is bigger from the other myths. And that's a lot to do with your lack of self-control. Straight up. Don't, don't feel too bad. It's all addictive and they know it. The same people that made the cigarettes now make the cereal and now make the media and the video games. It's the same idea, get you hooked, you can't get off. That's it. Now, this isn't to say that you have to reject everything that you know about life. It is simply to say you shouldn't trust evil men. And you should be skeptical of people who are not Christians. And if this election doesn't tell you that, I don't know what will. What stories run in your head? Start with 1 Thessalonians 4 that we're not gonna spend much time on. I don't want you to be ignorant, my friends, that everybody who's died in Jesus Christ isn't dead. And so anybody who grieves, because you do grieve, that happens, but anybody who grieves without hope or looks at their death without hope, well, they're unaware of this. They're not Christians. I don't want you to be ignorant and grieve like those who have no hope, who don't know that those who are dead in Christ are with the Lord, and that when he returns with that archangel shout and that trumpet blast of eternity, the lightning that will be more than lightning, the moment in which everything will arrive, well, those are words to encourage each other with now. No matter what is taken from you, it will be restored. Again, is that not the story of Job? But before I get to Job, I do have to deal with Luke. Luke 17, 20 to 30. Were those not some of the most terrifying things you've ever heard our Lord say, if you slow down and listen? They're asking about the end of the world. They're, they're asking about where the kingdom is. And, and to be fair, this is, this is different than what we're going to get in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be looking at Matthew 24 and 25, in which Jesus is specifically dealing with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and then using that as an image of the end of the world, but without any specifics about the end of the world. This is more about the specifics of the end of the world, start to finish, and the questions being asked by somebody different. Matthew 24 and 25, the question is being asked by the disciples. Here, the question is asked by the Pharisees. And again, what are they asking? When, notice the timeline, when is the kingdom of God going to come? Now, you can't entirely blame the Pharisees. It's not like they had other stories to work from other ideas to go with. All they had was the Old Testament and then the world around them, which showed that if anybody ever comes to be a powerful king who sets things right, 
it usually involves armies and thrones and war. And so they're very much expecting that when they achieve a certain level of moral purity as a, as a civilization, the, the Jews at that time, led by the Pharisaic cultic idea, but also they were in tension, of course, with the Sadducees. But they believe that when it really works, there's going to be coming some guy like Joshua and like David, like Othniel and like Solomon, like, Mo, like all of them in one dude. And he's going to rock it from Jerusalem. And they're like, okay, so you, you're like talking like you think you're this guy. And we can see that you do things nobody else can do. And you certainly know the Old Testament very, very well. So you got a timeline, man? Like you look weird. You're not doing what we would think. So what's the plan? So it's, it's, it's like one of the most honest questions the Pharisees ever ask, I think. I mean, usually they're trying to trick him or something, right? It seems like they, they really want to know. And he says, I mean, I'm summarizing, but he says, you guys have no idea what you're asking. You're so far removed from asking the right thing. I'm not even going to bother talking to you. You know, the kingdom of God will not come with signs to be observed saying, look, here it is. Now, you can cut like a knife through this by remembering something from John. I know you know, which is that Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So if you can remember that Johannian bit of truth and, and pull it back in here, you can see what the Pharisees are asking for, again, is a military answer. And Jesus simply says, there will not be one. That's it. You won't be able to see it. So if anybody tells you, come with us, we're going to lead Christianity to really, with like swords, ooh, <laughs> do not go out with them, he says. Now, this isn't to say a Christian can't bear the sword for his nation. He doesn't bear the sword for his king alone, ever. He bears his mouth for his king alone. And when his mouth and his body compels him with his neighbors by means of defending the weak and the innocent to take up arms, well, that's how civilizations work. But the idea here is not that you first have a sword. The idea here is you first have a mind and a mouth. But that's where the kingdom will then be found, he says, within you. And that's what I really want to deal with. If you go down to um, uh, the end of verse 20, right? Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, it says. Entos, uh, humon, uh, entos, in stuff, just kind of in stuff. It's not even really a clear word. Uh, and then humon is you plural, and that's really key. Okay, so he says the kingdom of God is in you. <laughs> it's not very clear. There's been a lot of argument about this over time. You have, a, you have main, three main ideas that come out of this. Um, one is that he just means inside your heart. One is that he just means inside the church as a body and as a group, a congregation's life. And then one is that, um, I'm going to lose it now. Oh, where'd it go? Come back to me. Inside of you. Oh, uh, this is kind of the more recent Lutheran answer, which didn't like the previous two, which is that he's actually talking about himself and the crowd so that the kingdom is me, Jesus, standing in your midst. I really liked that the first time I heard it. It's become less and less compelling the more I pay attention to the context, meaning that last answer. I think it's a combination of the two previous answers, that the kingdom that is not of this world, which God reigns by means of his Holy Spirit, that the sheep, you, hear in the voice of the scriptures, wherever they are preached, that that is going out into our midst as a group, but also into us each individually. And this is just Christian theology, that the Holy Spirit enters you by word and sacrament, and you are raised and regenerated into a new life of faith, 
right? And then as a body, as a group, that's happening among us. And Jesus is like, so that's what's going to happen. You're going to have people who hear my words and gather together because that's the kingdom. And you won't be able to point to anything other than what they believe as the signs and seal of that. So when he adds water and bread and wine as his own signs and seal, again, I mean, what kind of proof is that? Here, I got a resurrection from the dead to sell you. Oh, oh, you do, Pastor? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a resurrection from the dead for free. All you got to do is get this water on your face. Just that water, Pastor? Just that water. Get it on your face. You'll be raised forever. I promise. You think anybody like, buys that that's not a Christian? No one's going to buy that. That's not a sign. That's nonsense. That's snake oil. Unless, unless the kingdom's not of this world. And what you see is only, well, less than half of what's actually going on. Again, I guess that's a good way to come to Job. Oh, no, we have to deal with hell still. As lightning flashes up the sky, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When he says that, what he means is not that it'll be like lightning, but that one lightning event in one place is seen on the whole sky, and nobody misses it if you're looking at the sky. Well, so also, Jesus' return will be that cosmic. It will just be kabam all. How? I don't know. I'm a dude. He's God. He's going to figure it out. It's going to be glorious. And again, remember, you're going to be like transformed, caught up into clouds, flying down to earth with him in this thing. That's what, that's what Thessalonians said a moment ago. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, but from there, before that, here's the answer he tells the disciples. Because again, Pharisees are asking, when is this kingdom going to come? They're looking for the military kingdom to help them bring conclusion to history. And he tells them it's never going to come. And he tells his disciples, like, doubly so, beware. It's just going to look normal forever. And normal means bad. Normal means decaying. Normal means wicked men doing things and surviving. And yet continuing to, well, what it says, the days of Noah. When it was worse than now, by the way, it had to be. It had to be. He destroyed the whole place by water, top to bottom, all. At that time, they were, they were eating and drinking and marrying. They had restaurants and places to hang out and raise families and play sports. I'm sure they played sports, something. But then one day, bam, Lot, same thing, eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. They go out from Gomorrah. He destroys them all, and it goes on later. Jesus goes on later, like four verses. He says, don't forget about Lot's wife who got out and then went back. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. His point here is that hell is real. That's it. Hell is very real and most of the world does not expect it. I talked about how atheism is the belief that no one can judge you. Huh? The belief that no one can judge you. Many people live trying to escape judgment even though they believe it's coming. Hell is where the judgment you deserve comes. It's just karma in a sense Although, not really, but kind of, like you build it and you go there. You burn yourself down eventually without the God of life and purity building you back up. So it shouldn't entirely surprise us, and, and, and doubly so is this. I have never watched a movie, I don't think, where there was a clear hero who had a clear bad guy, where I wanted the bad guy to get like another chance I'm not talking about sort of the compassionate, struggling bad guy. I'm talking about like the really bad, evil guy. 
So why is it not good news if the good God said he's going to end evil someday? And that's hell. Hell is the end of evil. Imagine it however you want. He calls it fire that destroys. Now, I'm not saying annihilation, and eternity is a real thing. But really, before you worry about that, deal with the first question. What's so bad about God getting rid of evil one day? That's hell. Hell is where evil's going to go. It's eternal stuff. He can't destroy. Well, he, I don't know if he can't destroy it. I shouldn't say that. God does not go against himself. He is not destroying it. It's good what he's doing, not bad. That's the point. Hell is good. And somehow the pop civilization around us in this mythology is convinced that hell is like something we shouldn't talk about. Oh, don't tell people about that. It'll offend them. No wonder they don't care. They're not afraid of anything. So if Jesus' words made you afraid today, good. Remember, they're warning so you run to the ark. Because you know about the ark where the flood will not get to you. Christ, right? And you know about the angel messenger pulling you out of Sodom. Against your own best interest, even. Or worst interest. Your own efforts. That's what happened a lot. Well, that's you. These stories are not here to condemn you. The warning is not here to crush you. It's to prune off and build up in water. And now, if you want to water... Here we go. Job, dear heavens. I don't know that I'll be able to do much. Ah, oh, there is so much in Job. Let's start with his story because maybe some of you don't even know it. Job had such a blessed life. Dude had it. Like he's, he's in like third generation, like, like young grandpa. He's got seven sons and three daughters and they all live close. And all his sons are, like, so successful. They all have, like, like big ranch extended properties with lots of livestock and growth and community. It's, it's really not for themselves. All the people who would work for them would have been, like, the town in that little corner. That's kind of how towns were, were used to before the macro. Anyway, um, so he's got seven of those around him. And every day of the week, he and his wife travel to the other one, with everybody else that's actually related to them directly, and they feast at each other's house every day of the week. For like ever, like years. It's just life. Oh my. That is good. <laughs> that's really good. To the third generation, grandkids run everywhere. And then you got this whole bit that comes in where there's this courtroom, and Satan shows up as a character. And that's fascinating because where the name Satan comes from, the accuser, is a convoluted history. Uh, I'm not going to dive into that as well as there's, there's quite a history of where Job came from when it was written. It's, it's in Aramaic, which is strange as opposed to just straight Hebrew. And uh, um, the dating of it implies that it's late, not early. So it seems like it should be from an older time. And yet it seems to have been written down later than you would think, maybe sometime around Proverbs. So I'll just pitch my theory. I haven't read this one yet, but there's not been a lot of work done on Job that I've been able to see in at least in Lutheran circles. Uh, I think it's Solomon wrote Job. I think Job is Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a real guy, had quite the life, knew Abraham, and his story was passed down until Solomon got a hold of it and did a Shakespeare on it. And he made a Shakespeare out of Job. And he, everything that he received that was true in the oral tradition that God had given by his word, it got into the book. And everything that he learned from the wisdom of his study, he put it into the play. It doesn't mean Job wasn't real. It does mean that the conversation may not have been Homer. That's what I think. I'm willing to be challenged on that, but I love it. It just explodes the book. And then so you see these movements of this story 
where now here comes a character who we know about from somewhere else, this evil one who's in the presence of God and the sons of God, which I think means Christians in the church. But the long and short is that he makes this accusation to God. He says to God, if you give people good stuff, of course they like you. There's no such thing as love is really what that means. There's no such thing as giving is really what that means. And he says, look at Job, his life's been so good, of course he likes you. Now, what's also important, I should, I should mention this, God starts the conversation. It isn't Satan who comes in and says, no, what's up with Job? God says, hey, Satan, have you seen Job recently? Oh, man. So, so when Job's like, what did I do to you? <laughs> He's right. And this is maybe the most stunning point in the entire book. Job didn't deserve a lick of what he gets next. None of it. He'd actually been good. Not sinless, but good. A good man in such a way that the kind of catastrophe that befalls him is not deserved. And God tells him at the end, oh yeah, I just did it to you. Because it'd be good for you. That's the book. Again, I mean, how you fit that in. He says to Satan... You're lying. Love is real. Giving is good. I can take it all away and he will not leave me. And that in fact happens. Job wins the bet. He just at the very end expresses his doubt in such a way that he realizes rather than talk with his friends about the entire thing, he should have just sat there. Rather than complain to the God who he knew, he should have heard his own answer, which was, oh, he's on my side. It'll be taken care of. But of course, by the time that your seven sons, your three daughters have all died in a catastrophic collapse of their house upon them with you not there. And all your sheep and all your cattle and all your kingdom, because all these towns that rely on you, they have also collapsed and died. I got the people, but all the food's gone. And your body breaks out and boils and soars. And your wife says, why are you even here? Well, that's the next thing that happens. That's where I was Wednesday morning, by the way. Wednesday morning in the book, I opened it up, didn't know who my president was, and I was on an ash heap with Job. It's a good place to be, actually. It's a really good place to be. He is visited by these three friends of his, and I had their name written down once. I wanted to look more into the meanings of their names. It didn't seem clear on the surface uh, why. Uh, Hebrew names often have a symbolic character or, or a sign in them that will tell you what they're going to be about or what they're going to talk about. Um, and so uh, I looked for that. I didn't see it, but it's uh, – I'm not even going to remember their names now at all. That's sad. They all say the same thing ultimately, and that's what is important to get. They revolve round and round in which they exposit on different wisdom topics, like a proverb expounded to, say, a poem. So there's a bunch of like poems they're saying. So each guy maybe has five poems he speaks. And they're filled with actual, honest-to-goodness, true wisdom. Even the, the three friends who, by the end, though, take the truth and then they just tweak it to say one thing to Job which is, Job, you deserve this. Which is the one thing he can't say. He's not, he confesses, I'm a sinner. He confesses, I have hidden sins. He confesses that God's Almighty can do what he wants, and I don't know what happened. And they keep saying, well, it's your own fault anyway. 
And eventually, um, a guy named Elihu, and I remember his name, probably because he allowed me to be arrogant when I was young. He talked about how young people are smart, and so I liked that. And it's like the opposite of what you're supposed to do with that kind of knowledge. But anyway, Elihu comes in, and he does say, he says, like, I've listened to you guys. You've talked and you've talked. Job, you've responded. And none of you have answered the question. And all you've done is cast doubt on God's goodness. Now, what's important about his reprimand there is that that's what we as Christians really need to see in the book. The story of Job is about how suffering comes. And in that moment, we are tempted to cast doubt on God's goodness. And that Christianity is the promise that you can repeat to yourself that it's good anyway. That he is risen, that you are paid for, that you cannot die now. Jesus says it another way. No one loses anything in this life that will not be restored 100-fold. And you have to wonder if he wasn't thinking about Job as he talked about this. Because Job will see that restoration. We'll get to that in a second. But first, so Elihu says you're casting doubt on God. And that alone is wrong. He never says that's why you're getting punished. He just says that's just wrong. Job, stop. You haven't done wrong. Don't do wrong now. And as he's doing this, I never caught this before, and I, it's a little weird. I, I hope it's, I'm hoping to read some of this in the original language at some, some point and, and see this more clearly. The, it's like a movie, though. So this guy, Elihu, uh, I'm going to back up and set it up even more. Job's there, boils and sores, ripping his own flesh with a scratching shard to try to deal with the pain and the itchiness of it all. He's got these three friends who've done nothing but tell him he's a jerk for the last, I don't know, seven hours. And then this young guy comes in and is beginning to say, you guys aren't listening. And as he comes in, there is a storm that begins to build off on the horizon that comes with his words. And the more that he speaks, the more that this storm is about them. So that by the end, as he talks about the dark hidden nature of God that you cannot pierce and how his judgment will fall upon you if you are not ready for it. He then goes and says, look, is it not darkness and is there not light? And God starts to speak out of the middle of a storm. It's quite a movie. Really. So you, this beacon of light opens in the storm, shoots down on Job, and the first words are, who darkens anything? The author of light and darkness right there, right? Who darkens anything, Job, with your words? That's where darkness is coming from, with your words, your unbelief. It's quite, quite something, again. So God will then answer Job's call, which is really something. Job had said from the beginning, all I want is an answer from God. Bad stuff happened. I don't understand it. All I want is for God to answer me. This is the answer. Giant storm overhead, light piercing the darkness, and the voice of God saying, all right, here we go. Let's talk. But first you answer me. And he goes on this, this exposit of, well, do you know how to make the universe? Do you know how to make the planet spin? What about the little animals that you've never even heard of? Were you there crafting the way they gave birth? So if you can answer any of this, he lists a whole ton of them. On and on, this, that, this, that. Can you do this? Answer one of those, and I will absolutely answer your question. And Job says, I should not talk. <laughs> I should not talk. And from that point on, he's backing off. Whoop, you're God. I trust you, but I was wrong to doubt. 
I'm not destroyed from my doubt, but I know that my doubt is wrong. So after God demonstrates his complete sovereignty over Job and his promise that better things are coming, or better things do come, but I want to slow down there and pull back to something. Try to say this this way. If you pray for something, it's a good thing. We're not talking about like truly vain prayers here. We're praying for something you know God wants. Like the salvation of somebody, something like that. And you're praying for that. So you're praying for X. It's a thing. And instead you get Y. It's not what you prayed for. It's not what you asked for. It's not what you wanted. You pray for X, you get Y. What does that mean? Does it mean anything? Well, that's Job's problem. And the real problem then is a word I've dropped a couple of times the last few weeks, mysticism, M-Y-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, mysticism. It's from my book, Broken. It's one of three ways the devil tries to trap your head. Mysticism, rationalism, and moralism. We're just trying to, again, talk about this mysticism idea that the devil lies by pointing to pointing you to what you feel over and against what the scripture says. So someone says the Bible says this, and you say, yeah, but I, well, you're a mystic. Whatever your experience is amounted to at that moment, you're denying what the scripture says for the sake of your feelings. And Job is kind of in a very light end version of this temptation. He's prayed for one thing. He's received another thing. I forgot to even mention that in the story. I mean, he's got this this family and this mini kingdom and all these people who rely on him. This beautiful, beautiful scenario where he's blessed every day. And every day he's also going out and making sacrifices to God, not only for himself, but for all the family so that he can make sure God knows. He's really thankful for God for all this too. So he's even doing that right. He prays for X. He gets Y. He gets dead kids and a ruined life and a divorce a broken body. And that's God's still talking to him in that state. Now, the point of that conversation then is really this. So you prayed for X and I gave you Y, but do you remember how you prayed for Z way a long time ago? And how that was such an important thing and you wanted it so bad and you and you swore because you knew it was my word as well that if, if, if I would answer this prayer, I would be it would always be what you needed and it would carry you through. Because it was the prayer to keep trusting me all the way into the grave. And I said yes so loud, I'm never gonna back out. And so you come along now and you change your mind about this little thing, you want me to listen? You think you need a few more years rather than going to meet me? I'm not saying don't get health care. I'm saying remember the bigger prayer especially when you find that what you thought you wanted isn't what you got, because what you got is what God wanted to give you because it's good. And again, that's what he says to Job then at the end. You have no idea, he says, how good it's about to get for you. You can't even imagine it. And now this is really fascinating to me. So I read uh, the commentary in the Old Testament I always go to is by two guys named Kyle and Dalich. And I respect them a great amount. They wrote in an age of biblical unbelief. That is most of who they're engaging don't believe the Old Testament is true at all. And they do. They believe it's true. And they do great work. 
However, every so often, you get a bit of their liberalism sneaking in. Uh, they didn't really like Elihu and don't think he belongs in the book and so forth. But, um, uh, sorry, I'm going to lose what, why I, I got so excited about talking about them, I lost where, where I was going on that. Um, you pray for X, you get Y. Ah, yes. The most disturbing thing that they said was they thought the ending was insufficient. And their argument's pretty good, actually. So I got seven sons and three daughters, and I watch them all die, gruesome, horrible deaths, and then I get seven more sons and three more daughters, so I'm fine. Well, if you paint the story that way, it does sound like a bit of nonsense, doesn't it? Especially if you're thinking about this life being all that there is, and you forgot what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, or excuse me, <laughs> what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4 a moment ago. So now imagine for a moment, Job is a Christian, because he was, and all those seven sons and three daughters and even the wife are Christians. Maybe the wife isn't a Christian. Maybe all the Christians die. The wife leaves because she was always a nag to begin with, and everyone just put up with her. She's gone now. He couldn't help it. And then what does he do? He brings along another marriage that lasts for four generations. Now they all come to his house from their kingdoms every time, every day. All the fourth-generation grandkids. I asked my kids, you know, take, take this seriously. If you could have Job's life, Job's life, would you take it? I used to say no. And I don't say yes now because I want my wife to die. Ha! But if she did, or if they did, and the Lord brought me more Christians to love while I waited here longer, I don't think I could dismiss that. I think I'd have to rejoice. And that, again, is really the point of the book, is that no matter how bad you think it is right now, it's part of God making it truly great. And the greatness will be when Jesus Christ returns to be seen. And so don't look for that kind of greatness now. But there's a different greatness that we have, a kingdom that is not of this world, and it is the one that does not look over its shoulder when it talks. Because the spirit in us is ready to die because it knows it can't. He knows you can't. Even if you haven't figured that out in your psyche yet, the spirit's in you. He's not going to abandon you. And again, Job is the great testimony to this. So that I don't have to belabor us with announcements uh, after the service. I'm going to go ahead and give us our talk them into it in proverb points for the week. Uh, and I also want to be able to hold up my book for the camera. Yeah, my book, talk them into it. You should have free copies and you get a free digital copy if you sign up for my newsletter. But it's about talking to your friends and neighbors about Jesus, which I think is just about the most important thing ever. You can see I'm reading it through pretty significantly because this book comes out of me taking notes on two other books. I took, a note, I took notes on a book on how to talk to people and I took notes on a book on the resurrection. And I shoved them together into the best format I could in four or five drafts. That's about where we are on this. My plan is to do another draft over the next two years or so because I need to learn this better. So part of that, I think I'm going to be doing some of that in the newsletter. Mm, don't hold me to it yet. Um, but I'm also going back to it again and again because I didn't write this book because I know it. I wrote, wrote this book because if we're going to talk to our friends and neighbors about Jesus, I can't just be someone who says, go do it and never do it myself. And I know I'm not a real great conversationalist when it comes down to, you know, small talk. You got to work on it, which again, 
kind of what today's is about, page 19. Being kindly curious never loses. So two ways to sum this up very quickly. First, no matter who you talk to, at some point you're going to miscommunicate. You're going to think you said this, they heard that, and now you have to figure out what that means. In that scenario, being kindly curious never hurts. That is, if you can shut your own mouth, except to say, can you explain more of that to me? Honestly, though, not like rude. Like, you really, please, you are about to smash my face in with a brick. Can you please just tell me why? And what you'll find is people like it when you ask them what they think. They, uh, Dale Carnegie says it this way. Like, if you walk up to someone and just say, how are you? And let them keep talking and keep asking questions and walk away. Never say anything else but a question. They'll think you're the greatest person in the world, filled with wisdom. It's because we're so selfish. We love ourselves so much. Now, don't use this for evil. Use this for good. Recognize that going first matters. Yeah? And that being kindly curious is the way to not lose an argument by not trying to win it, by just trying to understand instead. That's from talking into it again. Yeah? And then your proverb for this week. Uh, it's good for this week, I think. Blessings are on the head of the righteous. Violence covers the mouth of the wicked. What story are you listening to? You know when it's the liar because it makes you afraid and you see the wicked prevail and they are glad. The mouth of the wicked goes before him. He's not hiding. But the, the head of the righteous, when you hear the word righteous in the Bible, when you read it, you need to understand this is justification by grace through faith, to use the old terminology. This is not, I shall grow righteous. This is, I am declared righteous. Blessings, good words, are upon the head of the one God declares righteous. Yes. Who is that first? Jesus. Are you in Jesus? Yes. In fact, your cup is about to overflow right here again. And for those of you at home, the Lord will keep you in your baptism. In the name of Jesus, amen.